children, ages, who wants to leave? Uh, age, Jillian, thank you for serving our kids. I think it's ages five years old through fifth grade. Dismissed to Bible Explorers. If you're our guest and that's new to you, uh, they can stay with you if you'd like. But if you're our guest, please just walk out. And if you choose to make use of this awesome opportunity for them to get a Bible lesson at their level, um, introduce yourself to the teacher so you know where to pick them up at and how to make sure you get the right kid back. All right, that's always a good thing. We are in Luke chapter 23 and Luke 24. I pray that you would uh, take a gift from us. It's free of charge. It's a Bible. It's there in front of you. It's page 883 in that Bible. And you can have that if you don't have one of your own. So our Roman cross builder friend asked that question for us all to consider this morning. Who is Jesus? And it just so happens that perhaps the readership is peaked at this time of year, but if you grab any National Geographic or if you grab any Time magazine, you are likely going to see that the cover has to deal with, is Jesus really alive? And if you spend the money on Time magazine or National Geographic, you will see that most of them today argue that there is very little evidence out there. It's really anybody's guess on who is Jesus. One columnist from the National Geographic wrote, It's not clear in history whether Jesus himself considered himself the Messiah. But after his execution, his followers were adamant that he was. No matter that from the age of 12, Jesus asserted an utterly unique relationship with his Father in heaven. Jesus says to his earthly parents, in Luke 2.49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? No matter that Jesus quoted prophecies specifically about the Messiah and then applied them to himself. If you're new to church, there is a title that he loved. It's called Son of Man. He refers to himself by that title more than almost any other title. And it's based upon Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. In fact, he quotes from Daniel as he talks to Caiaphas during his trial in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus was very confused about who he was, according to National Geographic. No matter that even Peter, when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus said to him, Peter, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Hmm. But maybe you're here and you're more skeptical. You say, those testimonies don't count, disregard them, because they're all biased. Okay. What would you say about ancient non-Christian witnesses of Jesus? Ancient, first century, non-Christian witnesses about who is Jesus. Take the Greco-Roman historian Tacitus. He wrote, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And listen to what he calls Christianity. And a most mischievous superstition, 
thus checked for a moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Tacitus was hardly a fan of Christianity, but at least he didn't pretend like National Geographic like there was no reliable evidence of this man. This didn't happen in a corner. The whole world was talking about him. Even Jewish historians, hardly pro-Jesus, worship one God, not a man who claims to be God, said it was his identity that got him killed. But today, more people could really care less about the historical reliability of the Bible, his death, or his resurrection. What we hear today from Oprah to other people is it doesn't really matter. What matters is your subjective faith experience. Who cares about history and the objective truths? One professor of religion, if you were to go to a university today, kids, this is what you'd hear in your entry-level religion class. Whether something happened to the corpse of Jesus is irrelevant to the truth of Easter. As a Christian, he says, I am very comfortable with not knowing whether the tomb was empty. Indeed, finding the skeletal remains of Jesus would not be a problem for me. How can he say that? For many people today, when it comes to religion, it's not about whether it's true, it's about the feeling it gives you. And so for you, if the metaphor of Christ coming back to life gives you the feeling that you can conquer the strongest odds, then for you, Christ is alive. It did its job. It gave you motivation. It helps you have peace of mind. It doesn't matter if it happened 2,000 years ago, just as long as your personal experience in your life, Monday through Friday, is better. So does the resurrection, if it's actually true in time, space, and history, matter? According to the Bible, it does. Luke began his gospel about eyewitnesses and wrote an orderly account to have certainty. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. It is what got him killed. Why else would Pilate ask, are you a king? And Jesus' answer got him killed. But what kind of king was Jesus? That's the question we're going to ask this morning in Luke 23. We're going to see three things. He was an innocent king, a gracious king, and ultimately a triumphant king. In Luke 23, verses 1 through 31, we're going to see first that Christ was an innocent king. Not once, not twice, but three times Pilate maintains the innocence of Jesus. I am having just a difficult time. Sorry. It won't stay put. The irony is it stayed put during the All right, sorry about that. Not once but twice, but three times, Pilate maintains his innocence. Look with me at verse 4 of chapter 23. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Look at verse 14. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, verse 14, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who has misled the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. 
the whole thing seems a little bit ridiculous. Jesus with no army. Jesus with no followers. Jesus with no Jewish authority support. He is somehow a threat to the national security of the empire? You can hear the sneering contempt in the question of verse 3. And Pilate asked him, are, are you the king of the Jews? Not only was he innocent before Pilate, he's also innocent before Herod. Look at verse 6. When Pilate heard that he was from Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Well, Herod was excited to see Jesus at first. This was his chance to have a miracle show, a circus with Jesus, if you will. He had heard that Jesus had supernatural powers, but when Jesus did not perform, things got ugly. The Bible says they treated him with contempt, mocking him, arraying him in splendid clothing. What a shame it was that Herod was more interested in seeing Jesus than hearing Jesus. How many of us today are more interested in seeing a sign if God would just reveal himself in the clouds, if God would just show himself, if, God could, if I could just see Jesus alive, sneak peek, chapter 24, we're coming there. John 20, we, can't, we don't have time for it, but Mary arrives at the tomb, and she sees Jesus, and she thinks he's the gardener. Two men on the road to Emmaus walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, don't recognize Jesus until he teaches them the scriptures. You know, miracles and seeing doesn't save anybody. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If poor Herod only desired to hear Jesus instead of seeing Jesus, and I would challenge you, would you hear Jesus through the living word of God? Well, at Passover, it was the custom to release a prisoner, and we see that now in verses 18 through 24. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. On this occasion, the clouds clamored for Barabbas, a convicted criminal instead of Jesus. And Pilate, a politician at heart, well, he gave in. He wanted to satisfy the crowd he crucified the Lord of glory and let a criminal go free. So get this. 
the convicted murderer got freedom and the Lord of glory got punishment. See the gospel. Just as Isaiah had prophesied, Isaiah 53, 11 through 12, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was an innocent king. But for the Jews, the cross proved that he was not the Messiah. Back in Deuteronomy, their book of the law, the second law giving, Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And so here for the Jews is irrefutable proof that Jesus was cursed by God because he is hanging on a tree. Therefore, their conclusion is he must be an imposter. He must be a fake. God would never allow his Messiah to suffer. But try as they might, know the scriptures as they might, they completely miss the point of the whole Bible. The Bible is centered on this historical event, Christ and him crucified. The whole of Luke, the whole of the Bible has been leading to this termination point. Consider Psalms 22. If you have your Bible, that's right in the middle. Psalms 22. Consider how a thousand years before Christ, this psalm was written. Would you look at verse 6? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Did you notice verse 16? For the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones they stare and gloat over me. Or did you get verse 18? They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before Christ. You see, the part of the humiliation of the cross was the naked exposure. Nakedness was part of the humiliation. Just like in Nazi Germany, Humiliating their victims in World War II, Corey Timboom writes about this in her marvelous book, The Hiding Place. Here's how she describes it. She says this, I have read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, and flogged him. Now such happening had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection, naked we had to maintain our hands at side positions as we filed slowly past a battalion of grinning guards. It was on one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, and yet another page from the Bible leapt to life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed at least a scrap of cloth but oh, I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces around us now. 
I leaned towards Betsy, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood sharp out and thin against her blue, molted skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. Friends, have you considered that Christ suffered public humiliation for you on the cross? Have you thanked him for being exposed publicly for your sin? Verse 35 says the people stood by watching. It was a public spectacle, and yet as he suffered there, amazing things were happening. We see this innocent king was also, number two, a gracious king by looking at the sayings from the cross. Look at verses 32 through 34. Verses 32 through 34, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus actually forgives his tormentors. Sure, he, he taught them on the Sermon on the Mount when everything was just starting to love your enemies and pray for them in Matthew 5, 44. But now, while they're nailing iron spikes into his hands, he kept praying for them. It's the imperfect tense in the Greek. We don't want to dazzle you with our brilliance, but it's an important part here because it just means he kept praying for them, which means he prayed this more than once. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Their crime was enormous. They had no idea. They were crucifying the Lord of glory. They thought he was a pretender. They thought he was a fake. They were hard, resistant, and like us this morning, spiritually blind. They needed to be forgiven, and Jesus prayed that God would. You know, if Jesus wouldn't stop praying for his enemies who tormented him, what about you? What pride? What pain? What prejudice? could justify you not forgiving your enemies in light of what Jesus did. Part of the great news about how he's gracious is seeing that you're a sinner. You have to see that. And probably nowhere else in America do we see that more than are you holding a grudge? Is there someone you need to forgive? Jesus forgives his tormentors while they are crucifying you. His second extraordinary feat is that he forgave the criminal beside him. Look with me at verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when we come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, as Isaiah predicted, was numbered with the transgressors. He was accounted with the criminals. 
lawbreakers. They hung there side by side, and who knows the words that passed between them. And then this most extraordinary act of faith, you have a criminal turning to another crucified man and pleading, remember me. A criminal turning to another crucified man, pleading, remember me. What could one dying man do for another dying man? What would possibly cause that request? I think three things. That criminal knew that first God was holy and just. He asked the contemptuous criminal, do you not fear God? The other criminal wanted to just be free. Save yourself and us. That criminal is like so many of us who just want temporary help in their circumstantial emergencies. So many of us who just want a divine slot machine to help us in our circumstantial emergencies. He was like people. And friends, we are so glad you're here. But on Christmas and Easter, there are people sometimes that come out of ritual, maybe no desire from God, for God, and all they want is a divine fix. Who wouldn't want a divine fix, regardless whether you're Buddhist, a Catholic, an agnostic? This other thief came to recognize that God is not a divine slot machine. No, he is an awesome and consuming fire. And he realized, secondly, that crucifixion was not his worst problem. It was what comes after. He was about to fall into the hands of a holy God, and this criminal knew he was a sinner. Verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And then there was the heartfelt confession in which he looked at himself and he compared himself to Christ, this man has done nothing wrong. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew Jesus could save him. He knew that it was salvation not from death, but it was salvation through death. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. To be with Jesus is to be in paradise. Senior saint, do you know where believers go when they die? Directly to Christ. No purgatory, no season of suspense, no the very moment a believer dies, the Bible says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So I'd ask you one question. Which criminal more resembles you? The one on the left or the one on the right? For one, Christ must come down from the cross in order to save and for the other Christ has to remain on the cross to fulfill his mission just like our Roman cross builder friend Christ's death was no accident it was an accomplishment which is why in Mark's gospel in Mark 15 39 the Roman soldier who sees Christ on the cross he says this at the end the centurion who stood facing him and saw this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of God. What accounts for such a response from a Roman historian who's killed thousands? So which are you? We invite you into the life that is truly life. Repent and believe Christ. Christ forgives you not because you deserve it. Christ forgives you not because you can earn it. Christ forgives you because he's a gracious king. 
And the only way he can be a gracious king is as if he's finally a triumphant king. Go to Luke 23, verses 54 through 56. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. It was the day of preparation. They had seen him die. Friends, they had seen where he was buried. No mistaken identity. They would return in two days to anoint his body. And not a single person. Christian, just think about this. Read all of the resurrection stories this afternoon. No one expects the resurrection. None of them get it. And yet Christ draws close to all of those who are doubting and fearful and scared. They weren't expecting the resurrection. There's not one mention of anyone ever surviving a crucifixion in history. So much for the theory that Christ swooned on the cross only to be revived in the cool of the tomb. No, he was dead. They all knew it. Pilate confirmed it because Joseph of Arimathea asked for his body and Pilate wanted to make sure. And now in Luke 24, verses 1 through 4, let's read that together. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They went with hope, preparing spices and ointments to anoint Jesus' body. But their hopes had really died. They had been buried, buried along with the Lord Jesus. Do you remember the place that Jesus died was between two criminals? And now the place of his resurrection, there are two angels. The women, it says here, actually went into the tomb. They did not find what they expected, the body. But they did find what they didn't expect. Imagine the surprise of seeing two men in dazzling apparel. They are heavenly visitors of the tomb. The women are awestruck. They bow their faces to the ground. And friend, have you ever stopped to consider why the angels rolled back the stone? It was not to let Jesus out. It was to let witnesses in. Come and see. Come and see the evidence. Come and see Jesus is risen. No doubt these angels were perplexed at the woman's grief on the day of triumph. They weren't looking for the living. The last time they saw Jesus, he was dead, and they expected that again. They thought his body had not been raised, but that his body had been relocated somewhere, maybe by grave robbers. That was common in that day. You can see their despair. After crucifying our master, now this. We can't even honor the dead. So the angels have to press in. Verse 5, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? We're not looking for the living. We're looking for the dead. (laughs) That's the whole point. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? The Son of Man, here we have that phrase again, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. 
the ladies are the first evangelists now to go back to the evangelist. And let's see what the disciples' response are. Verse 8, they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seem like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter still doesn't believe. Leaves marveling, probably doubting. Did you see that? The disciples are not heroes of faith around waiting for a resurrection. They are scared, doubting. They find him later behind locked doors, despite the fact that Christ had predicted his resurrection. Look up Luke 9, 22. Luke 18, 31 through 33. It blew their categories. These men, if you're here as a skeptic, were hardly gullible. They were deeply skeptical, deeply concerned about the historical credibility. They might be as skeptical as some of you are here today. Again, if you were to start a religion, would you start it and make the very founders of our faith, the very pillars of the church, be these guys? Repeatedly not getting it abandoning Jesus in their hour in his hour of need but then ultimately what accounts for them all dying for their faith J Gresham Machen said it was not the memory of Jesus and his life it was not the inspiration of past contact with him it was the message he is risen that message gave the disciples a living savior and that message this morning can give you a living savior too there's the evidence. I wonder what you make of it. How do you weigh it out? If you are here and you are a non-Christian, we are glad you are here. It's a great day to be here. Of course, you are free to leave without examining the evidence, but if you are here with an open mind and you are intellectually honest, at least consider these historical claims. And if that is you, I'd like to offer you a couple of recommendations that are free if you see me at the door. Who is Jesus? Small little book, got four of them. The other one, The Resurrection in Your Life. A little bit more of a devotional guide, probably for Christians there, but you can walk through that. If you'd like to read that this week, the next couple of weeks, and I'll buy you lunch if you call me up and say that you did it. Love to take you out and hear more about your understanding of what is true Christianity. Only the resurrection accounts for the response of the ladies, the disciples, the conversion of Jews in the first century. Revelation 5 has John, a Jew, writing about the true picture of Jesus. Not your bathroom Jesus picture, you know, where he's white with a halo, strong. Not that Jesus, but a real picture of Jesus. And it has him there in heaven next to God the Father receiving the same worship. No Jew would ever worship someone besides Jehovah. What accounts for weeks later, thousands of Jews turning from their Jewish faith to Christianity? Thousands of people start calling themselves Christians. In fact, the whole world is never the same. Who is Jesus? Who delivered him up to die? 
Friends, the death and the resurrection are signs of the extent of God's love for you this morning. If you are here as an unbeliever, can you imagine a more beautiful Savior than Christ and Him crucified and risen for you? Turn from your sins and trust this all-sufficient deliverer. Andrew, would you come lead us in our closing hymn?